0: That's one of the positive outcomes of this pandemic is people have gotten innovative and people are doing things that they normally wouldn't have done and it's opened up new channels for them and Alto's included in that because we've got such great mates with people that are doing those types of things and they want our product to be part of what they're doing.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Hugstep. devastating drought, brutal bushfires, a global pandemic. It's the stuff of Hollywood blockbusters. And yet, in Australia over the last year, it's been the harsh reality. What has been the impact on our food chain, the small, medium and large producers that nourish us? Westerly Isbar and her family produce Alto olives, one of the world's best olive oils and table olives. We've got Wesley with us now, how are you Wesley?
0: Good morning, Anthony. I'm pretty good, all things considered, thank you.
1: Well, that's good to hear. Um, I wanna talk about a range of issues because the pandemic um, is one thing, but as a producer, you've been dealing with drought and bushfires and all of these other things that have been impacting your business leading up to this. Um, So I just wondered if you could sort of paint a picture about what it's been like being a producer for the last you know two years in Australia?
0: Um, yeah, we're kind of waiting for the next thing to hit like an alien invasion or something. It just <laughs> kind of sometimes feels like there's no let up. but in a way, I think um, when you are a primary producer, when you're a farmer, you are up against Mother Nature, which I'm sure, as we are all coming to know a little bit better, even people living in cities, uh, she's a very tempestuous mistress and living in a time of um, kind of noticeable climate change where the seasons seem to be shifting. We have far more extreme weather events far more often. Um, We've been where we are, which is in the Southern Tablelands of New South Wales, experiencing now probably our kind of fourth year running of of kind of drought wow so it's it's just a constant is is what it feels like to me and certainly what it feels like to my father it's kind of the extreme stuff that that um is really difficult like you know when it's hot on our farm now it's like 45 degrees for five days straight um when it rains, it we get a hundred mils in three hours, and it just produces these gully rakers that take out the fencing. Um, when it's windy, it breaks the branches on our olive trees because the winds are up at around one hundred and twenty kilometers an hour. Uh, so you know, it's it's kind of like you're just dealing with these constant extremes that that make it really hard to uh, kind of just produce the food that that you're producing. I mean, we do olives, and olives are actually one of the probably more drought-tolerant crops that you can have growing in this country. Um, But they're still susceptible to these really intense weather events, and that's what we've been noticing more and more over the last kind of... I don't know, maybe five to six years. Like we've had drought before in this country, um, but but we just feel like every season, the the weather events that we do experience are of a more extreme nature.
1: Can you give us a, an image of you know the the state of the business and the farm previous to the pandemic and the impact that the droughts had had on production levels, perhaps? And then um, and then let us uh, know about how this pandemic has affected you.
0: So prior to the pandemic, um, we were actually tracking really well. Our business has been in a really steady state of growth over the last kind of five to six years. And even though, um, you know, we've been drought affected, as I said a little bit earlier, um, olive trees are extremely uh, drought tolerant. And actually, as a crop, they don't require especially the way that we've planted. We're not a super high-density grove or a high-density grove. We're a traditional olive grove, so they don't require a lot of water. There's kind of two crucial times of year where you need to get some moisture in the soil profile for the trees to kind of do well. So we've been pretty good and had really good crops. I don't. I mean, for people that don't know... Um, Olives are something that you harvest once a year, uh, kind of April May. So we're just at the end of the um, this year's harvest right now. But we were tracking really quite well. We we work with a network of distributors nationally. So we've never um, kind of offered direct sales or online sales, and our distributors predominantly serviced the food service sector, so hospitality. And up until this pandemic, we had really good growth year on year. Um, Our sales were tracking beautifully. We were able to service the market. So um, we always had enough oil from what our own crop was mixed with oil that we would purchase in fractions to blend with what we were producing. And we were really able to create a really beautiful range of oils to predominantly service the hospitality sector, so restaurants, caterers, hotels, things like that. And then, of course, almost overnight, (laughs) um, all of probably 90% of our business pretty much stopped um, because via our network of distributors, basically restaurants shut down and stopped ordering. So um, even with the difficulties of growing food um, in in the circumstances that we've experienced over the last few years, Auto was actually tracking really quite well, I would say.
1: And with the, uh, the impact of the pandemic of losing 80, 90% of your business overnight, um, what have you done to adapt to that? Because it's not like you can just quickly send it into retail and sign up deals and have it on shelves.
0: Yeah, so um, I'd probably say that we haven't maybe in our own little business model pivoted as successfully I, as I've seen some other small and medium-sized producers do. But that's partly because um, you know, we set up our model of working via distributors in the first place and servicing predominantly food service for a few very good reasons. One of the reasons is that we are very remotely located in the southern tablelands of New South Wales. Like the last hour to get to my farm, you're actually driving on dirt roads. So the nearest post office is almost an hour away. Um, uh, we we basically, you know if there's a huge rain event, the road is impassable. So we decided in the early days that the best way to get our product to market was to use the logistical power of um, good distributors and, you know, there's freight companies that will come to our region of the woods only like once or twice a week. So getting online orders out on a daily basis or servicing people that way, which you kind of have to do if people are buying you know, a bottle of oil and a packet of olives. You can't say, okay, the lead time's two weeks. Um, So we decided to go with the, you know, distributor model because the other thing is the way that we operate with particularly our extra virgin olive oil because it's such a premium product is we bottle to order. We keep our oils in these stainless steel tanks in temperature-controlled rooms under argon, which is an inert gas so that the oils don't oxidize. And we only bottle to order to maximize the shelf life on the product. So we don't have stock sitting around on our shelves. So what we've kind of relied on in terms of pivoting the business is, yes, we offer, um, you know, servicing people online, they can send us an email, order some product, and we actually have uh, a friend of ours who has a business in Sydney with a warehouse and she's holding some of our stock and able to service some small orders that way. But some of our really excellent distributors have managed to pivot their businesses really successfully quite quickly um, in terms of servicing uh, you know a retail offering of people being able to order the products that normally chefs were accessing. so, you know, beautifully artisanal produced cheeses, charcuterie, stuff like our extra virgin olive oils and naturally brined table olives. And so we're still, you know, quite pleased that we're working with them because they are still ordering um, small amounts of product from us because they've managed to now offer all of this stuff to the general public, not only by opening up their own warehouses but also by, you know, uh, basically zhuzhing up a whole brand new website and having a retail offering for people, which includes the auto products. So we're just doing it that way um, more than anything else. You know, we've noticed a proliferation of things like hamper businesses, virtual event businesses where people order, you know, boxes which have, for instance, like olives and all the things you need to make a really good martini. So there's been so much... Are happening out there where people have been really innovative and adapted so quickly and often they're coming to us to have our product as part of what they're doing. So in a way, you know, we're just riding on the back of what other people are doing because it's just so hard for us ourselves to, you know, transition to this whole new kind of online retail setup. And in, and that's okay. It orders are coming in, they're smaller, But it's enough to keep us going, enough to keep us afloat on our little skeleton staff scenario um, and to keep the brand, you know, out there and keep the awareness of what it is that we do out there.
1: Now, you said that you were riding on the back of a few businesses, which has helped uh, get your product out to consumers. Who who are the companies that you're talking about?
0: Well, um, one of our main distributors into the kind of Sydney market is Two Providors and they you know, very quickly decided to open their warehouse to the general public and then also launch a specific retail online business. So they've got our stuff on their shelves anyway and so people are now accessing Auto that probably wouldn't have been able to uh, get it as easily before because we never went after the retail market uh, prior to this. So we're not, for instance, available in big supermarkets. Um, then there is, uh, you know, businesses like there's this business called the Virtual Event Box and they approached us to get some product. Uh, people offering hampers, um, you know, Pecora Dairy that's in the Southern Highlands. So they're kind of, you know, they're kind of neighbors, not really, but kind of. Uh, they They opened a little retail shop and they also do home deliveries of hampers of stuff. So I think businesses that have been able to get together and offer a basket of products, um, you know, are probably going to be quite successful. And it's it's likely to be a channel for these guys that they're going to keep servicing once things, you know, return to some sense of normalcy and people are able to service restaurants again. I, I mean, I really I take my hat off to all of these businesses that have been able to adapt and be flexible so quickly uh, to get open up another channel to market, which is great because in a way that's one of the positive outcomes of this pandemic is people have gotten innovative and people are doing things that they normally wouldn't have done and it's opened up new channels for them and Alto's included in that because we've got such great mates with people that are doing those types of things and they want our product to be part of what they're doing. So we can easily service that and, you know, get product to them for them to be able to do these kinds of things.
1: A little earlier you uh, touched on some of the things involved in growing olives. Now your dad, Robert, is the olive grower. Can you tell me the story of how he got into the industry?
0: So my dad actually was, uh, well, he had a whole different life prior to becoming an olive farmer And um, how he actually got involved in olives in the first place was that somebody gave him 300 little spindly trees um, and he decided to plant them and grow them and they all died. So my father's quite a curious man by nature And because he wasn't able to make those trees work, he went and purchased another, I think it was around a thousand trees and planted those and they all died. (laughs) So he was totally intrigued and interested in um, olives after that. So he basically went off and studied them. There's a gentleman called Professor Stan Kalis that was operating out of New Nuneosha that my dad went and studied with. And then he tripped off to Italy and Spain and basically went and learnt the ancient art of growing olives and producing table olives and extra virgin olive oil. So our first real successful plantings that he did on our farm, which was probably in about 1999, was after he'd really um, gone and researched and decided that actually where our farm is, which was traditionally a sheep, a merino sheep farm, because where we are is not too far from Goulburn. It's in the kind of Abercrombie, Abercrombie wilderness, and it's real sheep country, actually, because it's very steep hills. We're at a very high elevation. Our farm is um, about 850 metres above sea level uh, at its midpoint. So so Dad, just because of his extremely quizzical and curious nature, was totally hooked on the idea of growing olives and ended up starting to do that success. Well, the first successful plantings that didn't all die in '99, and then um, basically after you know, oil, olive trees take you know usually about a minimum of five years before you get any real fruit, and usually around seven years before you're kind of commercially able to produce any oil and. You know, I I remember Dad's first um, – the first time we pressed the first oil that we made, we ended up with about 11 litres of oil. And um, my father put it in the middle of the dining room table at the farm and basically just wanted to look at it for a week. He was so taken with this liquid amber gold, which probably – in hindsight, tasted not so great because it wasn't the best (laughs) at that time. We didn't, you know, whilst he managed to keep the trees alive, he didn't actually understand the mechanics of making a very exquisite premium extra virgin olive oil at that time. But not too long after that, he started to understand, you know, much more about how you make really high quality extra virgin olive oil and started entering our oils into shows Um, and winning gold medals. So at the time it was still a hobby for him and uh, when we started to recognise that, you know, our terroir and the olive varietals that he had chosen to grow, you know, that were specifically good for our high elevation, our cold kind of climate. I mean we're considered very cool climate where we are even though we have 45-degree days in the middle of summer, at the moment, for instance, you know, last night there was a minus four degrees frost. So um, so he decided to kind of create a brand and plant more trees. So we started with a 1,000 and we are currently at 20,000 trees on our farm of 15 different varietals, predominantly of European origin, that were all chosen, uh, you know, to be suitable to the climate, suitable to our soil, and oil yield, quality, consistency, all of that, and um, he's totally hooked. My father's an olive farmer now. He used to be in the leather industry, and we grew up in Asia. Like, what a weird, <laughs> what a weird place to end up.
1: <clears throat> After the break, Westerly gives us some amazing advice on olive oil and also shares her hopes for restaurants in the future.
0: The restaurants that emerge from this will be stronger for it, better for it, and will offer people, you know, an even more exquisite dining experience.
1: This episode of the Deep in the Weeds podcast is brought to you by The Resilient Grenache from St. Johns Road Winery in the Barossa Valley.
2: Agriculture takes takes resilience, but uh, for me, Resilience is also about Grenache. In itself, it's a it's a hard variety. Like it, it withstands anything you throw at it. It's uh, it's a hard bastard, <laughs> and can handle most extreme weather events thrown at it. With the exception of maybe frost, it'll it'll handle anything. And after all that, all the shit that's thrown at it, it still manages to produce this light, pretty, delicate style of wine.
1: That's James Leaner winemaker at St. John's Road Winery in the Barossa Valley, who also told us about the beauty of Grenache.
2: Yeah, I just love Grenache, it's so, it's so unique. And there's the ways in which we do it, we try and build this sort of savoury element underneath it, under that um, that lifted bright fruits and florals. It can be quite difficult to make because it, it's so variable from vineyard to vineyard. Yeah, I think uh, one of our biggest and best, most fun blending days is certainly the Grenache.
1: The Resilient Grenache from St. John's Road Winery in the Barossa Valley. For more information, go to stjohnsroad.com. Now you're prominent in the world of olive oil judging. <laughs> um, what should people be looking for in quality olive oil?
0: So... Um As an extra virgin olive oil judge, the main things that you're looking for, uh, organoleptically speaking, so it's what you smell as well as what you taste on your palate, are freshness, um, positive fruit characteristics, um, a balanced level of bitterness and or pungency depending on the style of the oil, For example, is it a mild, classified as a mild oil, a medium style oil or a robust style oil? You're looking for balance. You're looking for harmony. um, You're looking for uh, deliciousness always. I mean, at the end of the day, extra virgin olive oil is a food and we are putting it on, you know, multitudes of things that we're eating we're cooking things in it we're dressing salads we're dipping bread so you really want it to be delicious and complex you're looking for complexity in a really exquisite extra virgin olive oil so you'll get different flavor characteristics and aroma characteristics coming off a really excellent oil depending on the style and the varietal and whether you harvested it early or late You know, the world of extra virgin olive oil from an organoleptic perspective is as interesting and complex as the world of wine. It's just it's not as well known because obviously, unlike parts of Europe or the Mediterranean where extra virgin olive oil is part of their lifeblood, it's what sustained them for centuries. In Australia... It's, it's fairly new, really, relatively speaking. So it's not so much a part of our vocabulary or our food kind of heritage, which, you know, I guess in many ways, everything is new in our food heritage because we're such a young country. Um, but extra virgin olive oil and the vocabulary around it is often kind of very new to people because most people or most consumers, or even when I first started in this business, most chefs just thought, an oil is an oil, you know, extra virgin olive oil tastes like this, but it doesn't. It's extremely variable. And there's just so many different things that come off the multitudes of excellent oils that we produce actually in this country. Australia is at the forefront of producing some of the best extra virgin olive oils in the world. I mean, how wild is that?
1: Yeah, that's pretty amazing. But there seems to be a lot of imported olive oil on the Australian market. What makes Australian olive oil so special, and why should Australians be buying Australian olive oil?
0: Um, yes, there is still a lot of imported oils out there, and I think that still goes to the idea that a lot of Australians believe that a good oil has to come from somewhere like Spain or Italy because that's you know they they're just not aware of the the booming industry that we've got here. And that um, actually, you know, oils, extra virgin olive oils, unlike something like wine, they do not age well. So one of the key things to having a really good extra virgin olive oil experience is freshness. So why should people be buying an Australian extra virgin olive oil if they live in this country and are consuming it here? Well, the first thing I would say is that it's likely to be a much fresher product, and that's such a key part of having a good extra virgin olive oil experience. The second thing I would say is that you know Australia is highly innovative, and when it comes to food production, we've got a really clean, green reputation because, as a general idea, you know extra virgin olive oil and this producers in this country really know what they're doing. So, you know, production, it's not just about growing really good, perfect, healthy fruit. That's part of the process of making a really good extra virgin olive oil. But the other part of the process is actually the processing of that fruit. And it's imperative that you harvest your fruit quickly, that your fruit is of very good quality and that you get it to the processing facility where you basically crush the oil out of those olives you know as quick as possible and that that processing facility knows what they're doing and that they are extremely clean and that they understand that you should not overheat your oil um, your olive paste when you're extracting the oil out of that paste and you know it's really about good grove management Good processing practices and providing people with the freshest possible product. We've also got two um, labs here that chemically analyse all of the oils for the kind of markers that you're looking for to see if something is actually extra virgin. So the free fatty acid is, <clears throat> excuse me, the free fatty acidity and the peroxide value. So we've got all of the um, kind of. Uh, ducks in a row in this country to produce really high quality extra virgin olive oils, and for them to land on supermarket shelves or into restaurants in the best possible, um, you know, product integrity because they're fresh. They were made here, produced here. They haven't travelled on a, on a, you know, container on a ship for three months, sitting on some hot loading dock somewhere. <laughs> Um, you know, the three enemies of light of uh, extra virgin olive oil are heat, light and air. And if you kind of cut that supply chain down and shorten it, you're likely to end up with a much better product just by the very nature of doing that.
1: The New York International Olive Oil Competition is basically the Oscars of olive oil. Can you tell us about your successes there?
0: Yeah, that's a really big one for us um, because the New York... Uh, international olive oil comp is basically the competition that every good extra virgin olive oil producer around the globe who's worth their salt will enter their oils into. And the reason why is because it's kind of, it's, it's in New York and they, they don't grow olives in New York. So, you know, there's no kind of bias there. It's, everyone enters, whether you're making your oils in Spain, Italy, Greece, Tunisia, Argentina, you know, Australia, everyone in the world that knows that they're doing good stuff is very likely to put their oils into this show because you get a really good cross-section of the best oils in the world. So you're not only kind of, I mean, we obviously enter all of our oils into the, the national show here that we have and, you know, the local New South Wales, Sydney Royal Show, the Melbourne Royal Show, but to, to kind of benchmark your oils against what's being produced globally and win a gold medal or a best in class basically is like saying, you can then say to your customers, you are producing one of the best extra virgin olive oils in the world and say it without blinking because it's true.
1: Yeah, that's pretty amazing. What do you love about what you do?
0: Oh, Anthony, what do I love about what I do? Every single fucking thing about it. Um, I think that producing food for your fellow humans to eat, especially sustainable food that is inherently good for you, it's inherently nourishing, highly nutritious, extremely delicious, I don't think that there's anything That I can think of on this planet that's a more worthy job to have. You know, we produce a food that is so good for people to eat, is so not damaging to the environment. You know, they're trees, Anthony. They sequester carbon back into the soil. Walking through an olive grove, it just is, it's a beautiful thing to do. Eating extra virgin olive oil, that is just chock full of antioxidants. It's a monounsaturated fat. It's good for your body. It's good for babies. It's good for old people. It's good for hair, skin. It's good for your tummy. It feeds your microbiome. Like I just cannot even begin to describe to people how lucky and how blessed I feel to be involved in something that I believe so strongly in with every cell in my body. I think that feeding people and growing food, good food, healthy, nutritious food and simple stuff is actually the way forward for all of us in the future. Like, you know, the planet is in trouble. We know that. And I think farming is a real way to address that. People's health is in trouble. Like we know that too. And I think what we eat is how we can address that kind of issue. So the fact that I work in a family business and we produce, to me, one of the world's greatest foods because its 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 history is 8,000 years old and yet here it is in the exact same form and we're still eating it in the same way today. It's the food of the past to me and the food of the future. And I just feel so lucky that that's what I say is my job. That's what I'm involved with with every single day of my life, producing a food that does no harm and does only good. If you cut me, I bleed olive oil.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I promise I won't cut you, but that's impressive.
0: Please don't. Please don't.
1: You know, Westerly, like me, you're a really big fan of restaurants. You know, I've eaten with you in restaurants. I know how much you love them. What are you missing about restaurants and what do you think is a way forward for them?
0: I'm missing the conviviality that you get when you have a fabulous restaurant experience. You know, there's nothing like getting together with good company, eating beautifully prepared food made by people that really know what they're doing, drinking gorgeous wines recommended by someone that knows their shit you know, having that buzz, that vibe in, a, in an excellent restaurant is there's nothing that replicates it. Like, I'm so stoked that everyone's cooking at home and using really beautiful ingredients to cook at home, but nothing will replicate that wonderful buzz you get when you're having that just ultimate restaurant experience. And of course, like everybody else, I, I miss that. And in a way, not having it, you know what they say about absence making the heart grow fonder, not having that experience for such an extended period of time makes me really appreciate even more, you know, the good experiences. It it gives me something to look forward to. To me, hospitality by its very nature is, is, is resilient. Like, you know, y- the hospitality industry will get back on its feet. It will be better, I think, in a way. I know this sounds weird, but I think we will all be better for having this experience, this kind of, you know, forced pause or opportunity to reset. And I think what might happen and what I hope will happen for the hospitality industry is that, you know, when it does get back on its feet, people will have had the time to think about how to move forward in a more sustainable manner for themselves, you know. And I think that the ones, the restaurants that emerge from this will be stronger for it, better for it, and will offer people, you know, an even more exquisite dining experience than the, what they previously were because they'll be so happy to get back in there and do their thing, you know? And hopefully they will have had this time to think about things and how to improve things that perhaps weren't working for them. So, you know, I have no doubt that restaurants will get back on their feet again. It might take a little while. I don't think the, you know, stage one lifting of restrictions is going to do much for most of the businesses that I certainly have respect and admiration for, because you can't offer that convivial experience when diners are sitting four meters away from one another and people are wearing gloves and masks and, you know, you're having to kind of have takeaway kind of cutlery and stuff. That's not going to happen. But there is no doubt that we will get back into restaurants and they will be able to open their doors and offer punters that wonderful experience that just cannot be replicated by anything else. It will happen. I don't know when, but it will happen.
1: And, you know, speaking of experiences, you uh, over the years have invited chefs to Hopeful Ranch and given them hospitality. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, well, for us, um, you know, one of the most important things when you're dealing with a product like extra virgin olive oil or table olives, which in a way like olive oil in a way can be considered a commodity item and we want people to understand why it's it's something that's such a beautiful product to use and to cook with and to – to eat, And the best way to do that, seeing as our main customers were always um, chefs and restaurants, was to invite them to my father's home because I don't live on the farm, but my dad lives on our farm. So to invite them into my father's home and give them the experience of Alto, which is life on the farm. Allow these guys to walk through our groves, allow them to walk through my father's Um, you know, vegetable kitchen, garden and the uh, apple, pear and peach kind of orchards that we've got, get out of their kitchens and into the wide open space, the air, the soil that is what feeds our olive trees and produces the olives that we then make into our brilliant table olives and our premium extra virgin olive oil. Give them a bit of hospitality back, you know. I cook for them. I'm way, way, way back in the day, very, very many years ago, I was actually a chef. So I, I love cooking for people and I love bringing these guys that, you know, they spend their whole lives in these kitchens, bringing them into this great outdoor space, allowing them to come and pick stuff from our garden and our herb garden, maybe get drunk on whiskey, maybe go, you know, and ride on the back of the truck up to the top of the hill and just breathe in some fresh air, eat some good food, drink some booze and just hang out with each other and with us, share stories and just, you know, have an experience that binds them to what it is that we do. And I I'm, I think life is about experience. And I think, creating great customer customer loyalty is about experience too. You know, at the end of the day, hospitality industry and even the supply side of it, which is what we do, it's about relationships. And we want to build great relationships with people and we want them to see where it is that we create what we create so that they value it that little bit more when they're using it in their own kitchens. So that's why we bring people to our farm, because First of all, we love their company and we love hearing their stories, but second of all, we just want to engage with them on another level.
1: Well, speaking of experiences, um, you said that you bleed olive oil. What's been your favourite olive-related experience?
0: Ah, oh, What's been my favourite olive-related experience? I have to say probably for me the thrill of – when we are pressing our new season oils every year, which happens only once a year, and I always go and visit, because we don't have a um, processing... We we process our own table olives at the farm, but we don't have a olive oil processing facility, so we have to uh, rely on a couple that are in our region that we go and bring our olives there, and, and they do it for us. But I always bring a big hunk of fresh bread, like I'll pick up a loaf of fresh bread, maybe some tomatoes and always a little bit of Olsen salt. (laughs) And I go always very, very, very early in the morning and I'll drive from Sydney. So, you know, it's like a three and a half hour drive. I'll leave at about four o'clock in the morning and go to the processing facilities where they are processing our oil. And walking into a processing facility when it is processing and making really beautiful extra virgin olive oil, the smell that hits you is extraordinary. And different varietals of olives smell quite different and taste quite different. And we grow this one olive on our farm called Hardy's Mammoth. And Hardy's Mammoth makes our vividest extra virgin olive oil, which is the one that at the New York International show they just can't get enough of. Um, It's the one that always wins the best in classes at, So many shows that we enter it into. And being at a processing facility when they are processing my Vividus and getting a cup full of it straight off the machine and dunking a big piece of fresh bread into that and then sprinkling a bit of salt onto it and eating that is my idea of absolute heaven. Like I just cannot describe the surge of endorphins that go through my body when that happens because it's like your whole year you build up to that one moment. Is the oil going to be good? I mean, we always think it's going to be good, but it always knocks my socks off every single time.
1: Wow, you've made me hungry. Um, (laughs) Westerly, (laughs) uh, you've been amazing. Um, Can you keep in touch? Let us know how the year goes and um, how everything pans out especially with that sort of bit of the retail side of things, um, changing what you do with your business. Sure. Um, But thanks again. We've loved having you on and um, talk soon.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Stay safe, isolate and be well.